weren't there for long. I mean, we was gone by the end of July. This is Richard Forrester, a veteran of the 2nd Battalion of the King's Royal Rifle Corps. He landed a day after D-Day and remembers feeling seasick and terrified on reaching shore. Oh, well, the Khan, that was, that was, and Falace, they were nightmares. Nightmares. The Germans were good in defence, they could turn things round, dedicated, most, if they weren't experienced soldiers, they were either Waffen-SS or Italy Youth. The Bocage at Normandy was the perfect defensive positions of anybody. You couldn't see anybody and suddenly all hell let loose. And don't forget they were small areas, only about 100 metres or maybe 150, 200 metres square, with all the hedgerows and the high, high banks of earth. It was an absolute nightmare. The sad thing is, of course, they always revert to the same old thing, bomb the place. I mean, we killed nearly 3,000 French civilians in Caen. I mean, what did they think? I mean, they put up with it. I thought it was terrible. Everywhere we went in France, Belgium and Holland, we were welcomed as liberators. The women, everybody, the children, everyone, even the men, everyone was so pleased to see They want to give you gifts, they want to give you fruit, they want to give you flowers. When we got to Germany, everybody was silent. I said, aren't you pleased to be liberated? They said, well, we're not being liberated. You're invading our country. Welcome to the Legacy of Liberation podcast, brought to you by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, marking some of the decisive battles of the Second World War. In the last episode, we began our journey through Normandy by visiting the cemeteries close to the landing beaches and moving inland, as Commonwealth troops did 75 years ago. We ended up at Bayer War Cemetery, which is where we resume in this episode. The Bayer War Cemetery tells the story of D-Day and the sacrifices of those who stormed the beaches. But perhaps the bigger picture is the brutal campaign that followed. In terms of the casualty rate, it was the bloodiest that Commonwealth forces had ever faced, bearing comparison with any of those horrific battles of the First World War that we know so well. I went over when I was about 18 and a month or something like that. And uh, I was in a situation with the Bren gun to kill people I never even met. Douglas Stanley Baldwin landed a couple of weeks after D-Day on the 29th of June 1944 as part of the British reinforcements and he was a Bren gunner. As an infantryman, a Bren gunner, lived most of my active life um, more or less chasing the Germans, which were then in retreat in Normandy. I was living more or less in hedgerows, fields, holes in the ground, moving forward every day, digging out the, um, or trying to get rid of the Germans that was in Normandy. Let's talk a little bit more about how Bio War Cemetery came to be and how it developed over the, the, the weeks and the months after D-Day. You've got some images here, Lucy, of the earliest work. So we can see uh, one of the, the graves registration units here, lots of, must be about 50 or so men, uh, marking out this large field that belonged to a, a local farmer. Um, and they're plotting the, the uh, different plots of the graves and making sure the rows are all straight and, and neat. It's really difficult to imagine looking yeah. out now at all the headstones what that field would have looked like even 
whether it was bigger or smaller, um, the angle that we're looking at, it's really hard to imagine it. But but after the registration units had done their job, of course, then graves were made here, people who'd been uh, wounded, treated in the hospitals that were, were just adjacent to, to where we're sitting now, um, buried here then, battlefield graves brought in from, from outside. And then after that, the concentration of graves, perhaps that had been um, dug and, and people who'd been buried in smaller cemeteries all around. Yeah, we're really fortunate in our archive to have uh, lots of pictures related to one particular graves concentration unit. So, as you say, Glenn, they're the, the people that are, are coming and bringing the, the graves from the battlefield. Number 48, graves concentration unit. We can see the kind of shelters that they were headquartered in and the various maps that they used, much like in World War One, right? The, the body density maps. All around that you can see Con labelled on the map with little flags pinned in to show where there are graves that need to be brought in. And, of course, they're all in uniform. This is part of the army. So this is just as important a job in many ways as actually uh, the fighting. You know, the aftermath mm-hmm. of the of the fighting is just as important in terms of organisation and logistics. I mean, this image that you've you've got mm-hmm. here is hundreds of vans of lorries um, parked uh, in it, what looks like a massive car park. Yeah, the the infrastructure of such an operation, as you say, it's um, on a grand scale. And you can also see pictures here of a guys going to find graves in the middle of, of woodland. Often we would hear from the locals, be relying to the locals to tell us about where people have been buried. Interesting looking at them, seeing people uh, inspecting personal items in the hope of identifying casualty and they've got uh, cigarettes in their mouths. Yeah, this looks like a, a French civilian mm. who's helping out the, the British <laughs> Army officers. Um, there are some lovely pictures here too of uh, women working mm. in uh, the offices painting signs. Mm. So painting uh, both signs for for cemeteries and uh, crosses that would um, be in cemeteries as the original grave markers. So uh, World War One, those would be wooden, and, and now in World War Two, we have metal um, crosses. William Moody is the horticultural supervisor for the commission in Normandy. It's his job to make sure that standards are maintained across the 18 commissioned cemeteries in the region, to make sure that they look beautiful all year round. And he's worked for the Commission for the best part of his adult life, for over 50 years. My father started to work. He was an ex-army man for 10 years. Uh, so my father worked, so he gave me his value to understand what cemetery was. And my brother worked, uh, was myself, of course, my son, and my nephew. So we're the third generation, my son. and So it's a big family. A moody family worked uh, most of all of them work for the Walgreens Commission. <laughs> and we're proud to work for the Commission. I mm. think it's a very good company and I think we and it's a privilege to, to, to work in cemeteries for the veterans. I think that's quite important. And so this must be one of our um, most well visited sites. Do you find that you get the opportunity to interact a lot with the public? And yes. Uh, every year we go over 270,000 people here. This, this place is, is I think all the cemeteries are special. I think that, that people must must know that. Every site is particular. I mean, here is, is, is one because it was built, it was completed in 1952, after the war. And you got six different nationalities in there. And it's not many cemeteries which have this so much uh, different nationalities in the cemetery. And I think when the public come, they are surprised to, to, to see the Walgreens Commission are so many nationalities in one cemetery. 
So we're coming up to a plot here that looks um, slightly different from the, the uniform Commonwealth graves around us. Uh, these seem to be foreign uh, troops. We've got Polish graves here with the pointed top, um, some Christian French crosses, forces of uh, the Soviet army with stars on the headstone, and these would be Czech graves. Yeah, these kind of, I suppose you'd describe it as a, a triangle with the top lopped <laughs> off. Um, rather dramatic symbol as well, and the the symbol of what was then, of course, Czechoslovakia um, inside it. This looks to me like an Italian, Soldato Cosimo Trimarchi, uh, who died in 1945. And just over here, looks like we've got some other uh, different graves too. I mean, all of these, of course, have the same dimensions. Uh, none of them are bigger than the others, but they all have their distinguishing features. Now, this is an interesting one. Let's have a look at this grave. It commemorates Mabruk ben Saad, and it looks to be a Muslim grave. Yes. So rather than the cross, uh, more pour la France, so a French serviceman, but uh, a Muslim French serviceman too. And this is interesting over here. If we just come here, we can see that there are two headstones touching. Let's have a look to see what's inscribed. Okay, so we have a pilot here, some air gunners, uh, looks to be five names in total across these two headstones. So they would have been uh, from one plane that crashed? Yeah, and the bodies couldn't be individually identified. And I think what's most poignant perhaps is that one of them, Flying Officer McFadden, was from the Royal Australian Air Force. And so the, the two symbols of the, the RAF, per Radua and Astra, and the Royal Australian Air Force are intertwined mm. on the top of the headstone. So five men, two headstones one grave. I love these gates. Boulevard Fabian Way is a busy road. We've crossed over Boulevard Fabian Way, which is quite a busy road by all accounts, just as it was in 1944. And we're sitting beneath the Memorial to the Missing of Normandy, designed like the cemetery by Philip Hepworth. And we're looking at the panels with names inscribed into the stone, 1,800 of those with no known grave, the missing of, of Normandy. But I think the inscription on the front for me is, is the most striking thing. In Latin, it says, we once conquered by William have returned to liberate his fatherland. And we can just about see the spires of the Norman mm. cathedral here in Bayer. So it's a very interesting decision to put that inscription there. And as we saw in Italy, combining the, the modern, the Second World War, with those ancient, those historic connections of this place. Looking on the names of panels here, what stands out to me immediately is this one uh, saying Sister Dorothy A. Field. So what's the story there? So she was part of what was called the Queen Alexandra's Imperial Military Nursing Service, effectively the nursing service of the army. Um, and of the 22,000 people who are buried or commemorated here in Normandy, there's only two women, Dorothy Field, and her colleague, Molly Evershed. Uh, her name is just around the corner on the memorial here. Uh, and they lost their lives on the 7th of August, 1944. They were helping to ferry the wounded back across the English Channel to the UK. Um, they were on a ship called the Amsterdam, a hospital ship. And they'd already made a couple of trips back and forth. Um, but on the morning of the 7th of, of August, the ship hit a German mine that had been dropped from the air um, and started to sink very rapidly. And the story goes that Dorothy and Molly both could have gone to safety, could have, been, could have been rescued themselves, but they made the decision to go back down below decks to help 
bring soldiers who couldn't help themselves up to the top deck so they could be rescued. They didn't know how long would be left. They didn't know when the ship would, would finally sink beneath the waves. And it's hard really to imagine the, the kind of sense of devotion to duty and bravery mm. that those two women must have had, those two nursing sisters. Uh, mm. But unfortunately, they lost their lives in the process by helping to, to save 75 lives. They mm. lost their own. And I think what's particularly poignant is after... Um, after they'd been killed, the 75 soldiers they'd helped to rescue wrote letters to their parents thanking them, mm. expressing their gratitude, their admiration for them. And one hopes that that gave them some kind of comfort, some kind of solace, that even though they'd suffered their own tragic losses, at least their daughters had, had helped to save so many more lives. So we've just arrived at Jerusalem War Cemetery, and this is a, a 10-minute drive from Bayer. Um, off quite a busy road. We've just come in through uh, some bright blue gates, quite distinctively coloured, down some uh, stone paving slabs set into the grass um, to a small cemetery, the smallest cemetery that I've uh, been in, uh, with just three rows of headstones, 48 in total. So what's the significance of this site? Well, we're just beyond the landing zones. We're down to the south of Bayeux. Uh, and what happened here was that after D-Day and the, the days that followed, the Allies were desperate to, to build up their resources, to bring in as many men, as many machines, as much ammunition and equipment as they could um, to really secure their position and then to push inland uh, against the German lines. And the Germans, of course, were rushing to counterattack. And there was incredibly fierce fighting in the villages down to the south. Um, many of the civilians who, who were still living here at the time uh, were actually evacuated, retreated back to Bahia. They were amazed when they saw that that city had suffered no damage to speak of because their villages were in the middle of this huge firefight. And I think it's probably worth reflecting on the impact on those civilians that this liberation had. It's estimated that tens of thousands of French civilians lost their lives, both in the bombing that preceded the landings and during the fighting uh, on D-Day and afterwards itself. Very important that we that we remember that. But places like this um, were dug, uh, burial places for, for soldiers who died in those firefights in the days after D-Day. And this one's very special because it was on land that was donated by the local villagers. And they were very keen to keep it here. Um, after the fighting had, had moved on, after the war was over, many of the smaller cemeteries that had been made were concentrated into larger ones. But here at Jerusalem, the villagers were so intent on, on preserving this cemetery, it had already been established, the land was already here. And so in tribute to that, to that desire, in tribute to that, that gesture, this cemetery was preserved in its, in its small, very intimate form. Yeah, it's really interesting, that idea of um, the, the attachment that locals had to the graves and that sense of um, ownership, if you like, something proprietorial and protective about their attitude towards it. I was reading a really interesting account in uh, our archive, someone who uh, worked for a graves concentration unit and he originally started in, in France, then went over to Belgium World War II and he talked about uh, moving a couple of graves that had been in a, effectively in a back garden like of a, a local villager and uh, she came out of her house screaming and crying and saying that they mustn't take these people that she'd been looking after um, so sort of lovingly for months uh, on end and, and in a sense that was her kind of contribution to the war effort if you like that was her recognition her her thanks her gratitude for for what they had done after the break we'll be continuing our journey through the normandy countryside and exploring some of the cemeteries off the beaten track 
To mark 75 years since D-Day and the liberation of Europe, the CWGC is creating a sound archive called Voices of Liberation to capture people's voices and reflections on the Second World War. And the CWGC sites of remembrance across Western Europe, the Mediterranean and the Far East. Want to contribute or listen to the voices recorded so far? Just visit the website at liberation.cwgc.org. What does it take to ensure that those who died in the two world wars will never be forgotten? Discover the answer at the CWGC Experience, a unique new visitor attraction that will shine a light on the work of the remarkable organisation at the heart of remembrance of the war dead, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. A trip to the battlefields of the Western Front is not complete without a visit to the CWGC Experience. Wow, I didn't realise it was this big. Further along the road is tilly sur Cells, where some of the fiercest fighting took place. It changed hands many times before British troops finally captured the village. But we were particularly interested in the grave of one of the war's most enduring literary figures. It's just over here. We come to the village of tilly sur Soil, which is a little bit further down the road from Jerusalem War Cemetery. And this village saw huge amounts of fighting. Um, from the early days of June all the way up until mid-July. It actually changed hands 23 times during that time between the British and Commonwealth forces and the Germans fighting ferociously to counter-attack. And this cemetery is probably best known for being the burial place of a war poet called Keith Douglas, perhaps the finest British war poet of the Second World War. Interestingly, he'd actually studied at, at Merton College, Oxford, under Edmund Blunden, who had been one of the first World War poets and actually served as the literary advisor to the Imperial War Graves Commission. And Keith Douglas came from a very humble background, um, but he'd won through his own artistic merit a place at Oxford. But on the outbreak of war, of course, he volunteered for service and he fought all the way through North Africa and then into Normandy with a tank unit, the uh, Nottinghamshire Yeomanry, Sherwood Rangers. So he was already a veteran at the age of 24, um, he was well respected by his comrades. Unfortunately, he was killed by mortar fire on the 9th of June, just a few days after D-Day, while on reconnaissance just north of, of where we are now. And Lucy, we've been visiting many cemeteries so far in Normandy, and the subject, the theme of poetry is something that's been on your mind. Mm, well, my background's on literature, and it's always struck me that that injustice in a sense that's done to the Second World War poets. We often think of the, the First World War as the one with a, a literary legacy and having that great generation of, of writers, Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen, Rupert Brooke, etc. And just the last couple of days it's been really interesting being at cemeteries where we've seen the graves of uh, poets and read some poetry related to, to visiting cemeteries that I think was, uh, has had quite a profound impact on my sense of them. Obviously, Keith Douglas, most famous for the poem Simplify Me When I'm Dead. And that's a, a wonderful poem that seems very ambivalent about that process of, of memory. Take the brown hair and blue eye and leave me simpler than at birth. When hairless I came howling in as the moon came in the cold sky. Of my skeleton, perhaps, so stripped, a learned man will say, he was of such a type and intelligence, no more. Thus, when in a year collapse particular memories, you may deduce from the long pain I bore, the opinions I held, who was my foe, and what I left, even my appearance, but incidents will be no guide. 
Time's wrong way telescope will show a minute man ten years hence, and by distance simplified. Through that lens, see if I seem substance or nothing, of the world deserving mention or charitable oblivion. Not by momentary spleen or love into decision hurled, leisurely arrive at an opinion. Remember me when I am dead, and simplify me when I'm dead. Captain Keith Douglas, 2nd Derbyshire Yeomanry, died 9th of June 1944, aged 24. And the personal description here, poet, artist, these things he loved, he died in their defence. To end our journey, we wanted to go even further off the beaten track, away from the hustle and bustle of Bayer and the, the busy tourist areas around the landing beaches. So we found the cemetery much further inland, in a quiet spot, away from all the traffic. We've been thinking a lot about what these cemeteries will look like in the years to come, when the veterans have gone and when the 75 year anniversary is over. And how will these places be viewed and how will they be used? And we've looked in the cemetery visitors book and we found that there's some very personal connections of visitors to people who are buried here. Mm, it's interesting, a, a pattern of people sort of talking to the dead, almost as a, a comment here, what a glorious day to visit and remember you. Mm. And we hope you like the flowers, Norman, in our hearts always. So the comment addressed to the mm. people who are buried here. Interesting, looking through actually, that the, one of those people addressing the dead uh, is actually visited again. So he visited sort of at the end of 2018 and has come back a few months later. Lovely uh, day to visit, the flowers are in bloom. So that clearly it's a place of habitual um, remembrance for people. This is somewhere that you come for your, your personal family pilgrimages. That's very interesting because, of course, for all of these families, uh, and many, some of them are in, are in living memory, there's, there's no grave back home. So mm-hmm. this is the place that they come to, to lay those flowers, to have those quiet moments of reflection. So we're looking at uh, a little stone that's been left by the grave, a little tribute. What does it say on the stone, Lucy? Bill, my nan told me how lovely you were. They never got over losing you. Oh, it's very touching, isn't it? Guardsman William Turner, Coldstream Guards, died in August 1944, aged just 20. And Um, what's the inscription there? Yeah, our thoughts of you from day to day. Time will not take away. Loved always, mum and dad. Clearly their grandchildren too. Now what's this plaque here? It looks like it's in French. It says, Nous n'oublierons jamais le sacrifice que vous avez fait pour notre libération. We will never forget... The sacrifice you've made for our liberation. This is the grave of a chaplain to the forces. Yeah, the Reverend F.W. Musgrave, Royal Army Chaplain's Department. He died on the 2nd of August 1944, 39 years old. Let's have a look at the personal inscription. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This is just one of so many different stories Mm. of personal connections to, to local people. The fact that these cemeteries are... Places of pilgrimage for families often very far away, but also places of pilgrimage and remembrance for people who are very close. So we're standing in, in the middle of Hotelabag War Cemetery now. It's so peaceful, it's so beautiful. We're looking back at the lovely shelter building with the pergolas and the wisteria climbing up them. The, the late evening sunshine um, on the graves and the birds singing in the trees. It's so peaceful here. And it feels so different to so many of the other mm. cemeteries that we visited. 
Yeah, we've had uh, the last couple of days with those, those sort of major sites and kind of um, well-worn in terms of visitors there, very uh, crowded. And sooner if we entered a cemetery, we've been inundated with uh, other visitors coming to, to look at the graves. And here now in the evening sunlight, just being here, uh, in isolation and seclusion in a sense and the cemetery itself being isolated away from the others it gives a different perspective very intimate I think many of the others are so close to the action as it were that's mm. so familiar we can even see the sea from some of them um, and that D-Day story and, and here I think we get a demonstration of of the fact that that continued, that fighting continued. This isn't a D-Day story. This isn't a famous story. This isn't uh, a story that that great films were were made of. And yet, in the in the quietness here, in many ways, I find it even more touching. We we look around, we see these little personal mementos mm-hmm. that have been left, the odd flag, uh, little messages left on the gravesites, and of course that that incredibly moving visitors book with those mm-hmm. personal messages to the people who are buried here. I think for me, in many ways, you know, even more moving. Mm, we've had kind of a, a tour of collective memory for life and we've been thinking about that how how do different nations and uh, different generations uh, remember and here it's a reminder that for so many people actually that that act of remembrance is deeply personal and familial and uh, will endure for many generations to come Since we recorded that episode, we've had the D-Day commemorations, the 75th anniversary, um, and all of the, the world's eyes, really, on, on Portsmouth and on Normandy. And for me, it was a, a huge privilege to be over there and to spend time with veterans at the gravesides of people that, that they'd known 75 years ago and, and, and who'd lost their lives. Really moving experience, huge privilege to be there. And of course, we're coming up to the last major anniversary this year of the uh, the Battle of Arnhem. The airborne landings happened there in September. So for our last episode, we'll be going to Arnhem and seeing the cemetery there. I mean, it's made famous by the film A Bridge Too Far. And I guess in some ways more than D-Day, people remember a kind of heroic failure. It's like Dunkirk mm-hmm. uh, and all the rest. So I think in many ways, Arnhem still has a, a place in people's memory far beyond um you know, the actual importance of the battle itself. But I'm really looking forward to going and seeing it. You've been there, haven't you? Yeah, I went a couple of months ago. Um, a really, really beautiful cemetery. I think you'll be um, interested also in the the different kinds of memorials that are left at the graves. I think it was one of the cemeteries that had uh, the greatest variety in terms of personal stories and messages um, that have been left on graves. Um, so I'm quite looking forward to showing you some of those. And a deep connection with the local people. Just thinking, you met veterans, obviously, who fought in, at D-Day, and I was thinking about the, the fact that, of course, with Arnhem, you've got the, the next stage. You've got a new generation of uh, children that came to tend those graves just after the war, and uh, we're going to be meeting one of them, one of the original flower children, as they were called. Do look out for the next episode. It'll be coming up in September from wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, do like and subscribe to the series and let us know what you think. The Legacy of Liberation podcast was brought to you by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. The presenters were Lucy Kellett and Glyn Prussell. Our thanks go to William Moody, Douglas Stanley Baldwin and Richard Forrester. The producer was Jack Sheeran. <laughs>